I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. Changemakers are people of action who are always future-oriented. They are the dreamers, makers, and doers. The people who start things, move the world forward, and inspire others to do it. Ian Ritchie is a serial entrepreneur whose work in the technology industry alone has helped influence how we live and work today as a society, including his pioneering work with the software company he founded, Office Workstations Limited. Ian has helped build Edinburgh and Scotland as a centre for innovative, high-growth technology companies, where he has been instrumental in developing over 50 startups and served on the boards of Scottish Enterprise, the Scottish Funding Council and co-chair of the Scottish Science Advisory Board. Hello and welcome, Ian. So what inspired and attracted you to be an entrepreneur in the first Mm. place? I was always quite entrepreneurial in a way. I, as a kid, I, I played with my imaginary company <laughs> um, <laughs> that had little trucks and vans and things, and they all had my logo on them and stuff. And um, at school, I was very entrepreneurial. I was very much involved. I was just a local high school, but I was very much involved. I was president of the local literature society, editor of the school magazine, all these sort of things, you know. Yeah. Um, so I was the kind of person who did things. Um and at university, I spent most of my time at university on the Student Television Society uh, making TV programs uh, that nobody watched. But <laughs> it was, um, you know, it was just a way of, of putting your energy into something creative and so forth. And uh, and so um, when I started um, my career, I, I did computer science at university and I joined ICL, the computer company. Um, I... I didn't know I was any use, to be honest, at the beginning, but I I got promoted pretty much every year to a more senior job. And so I was clearly doing something right. And um, so I began to build confidence that I could actually do things. Um, And so when the time came, um, it was a good opportunity to start uh, an entrepreneurial career at that point. I'd got to the stage in ICL. ICL had three well, three or four research and development plants, Brightnell, uh, West Gorton in Manchester, Kidsgrove in Staffordshire, and uh, Dalkeith near Edinburgh, and I was in the Dalkeith plant. Yeah. And I'd done all, I'd done several jobs, um, and my final job at Dalkeith was, um, I was managing half the half the place, and uh, I knew my next job was not going to be in Dalkeith. I was going to have to move to Kidsgrove or Stafford, uh, or Brightnell or somebody, and uh, I didn't want to do that. So yeah, that yeah. was the point where I left um, ICL and joined, uh, what well, I got funding for uh, an entrepreneurial career. You are clearly a polymath in that you are an oracle of insight about many different fields and knowledge bases that you intelligently apply in your core field. What's been your creative process in terms of how do you make the invisible visible by dreaming up ideas? Yeah. developing them into concepts and then bringing them to actualization. 
Well, I was always, um, I mean, the reason I did computer science in the first place is I was always fascinated with the computers. And this was the mid-60s, late 60s. And, of course, you didn't have a computer. There was no personal computers in those days. But it was an exciting concept. And, and um, I thought, if I do computer science, my uncle um, was an early computer pioneer, um, though he lived in London. Um, and I thought, you know, this computing stuff is is going to take over the world. It's going to be massive. Um, if I if I do computing, I'll have a career. There's no question about it. And I'll be able yeah. to do quite exciting stuff. And really, from the very beginning, I was really quite interested in personal computing. Um, I wasn't really interested, particularly in mainframes. I was really interested in computers that were in front of you. And they didn't really exist when I, when I started work at ICL. But over the next few years... Um, they did begin to appear. Um, yeah. I remember one time there was a new chief executive appointed to ICL and he came to give us a pep talk and um, he addressed the, 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 the troops in the, in the office and I put my hand up and said, um, I hear Dixons have started selling the Commodore PET and people are buying this to do their admin and their accounting and stuff like that. And I said, are we going to get involved in, in this sort of entry-level programming? And he looked down his nose at me and he said, um, ICL doesn't make toys. So that was, that was me told. Um, the very next day, I had to go down to West Gordon in Manchester where they were making the biggest computer I, ICL had ever made. It's 1966, based on Manchester MU5. And um, we were doing an environment for that. And while I was there, I was there for the the, 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 the update meeting. Um, I said to one of the guys, what's that there in, in the cupboard? And in, in I saw a small room and there was a little typewriter looking thing. And he said, oh, that's an Apple II. We're using it to run the project. And I'm thinking, okay, these are the guys who are making the biggest computer ICL's ever made. And they're using an Apple II. Uh, with VisiCalc uh, to run the budget and the program and so forth. And um, that was a bit of an eye-opener. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the managing director of ICL thought they were toys, but the guys making the computers didn't. <laughs> and uh, and so actually, um, subsequent to that, um, ICL got into partnership with Three Rivers Computers in Pittsburgh um, for a, um, to, 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 to co-market we were really the global marketing for a, a machine they'd made, which was an early graphics workstation um, called the PERC, P-E-R-Q. And it was a spin-out of Carnegie Mellon University, and it was an advanced graphics workstation. So it was it was networked, uh, um, a high-definition screen, 300-dot print screen, which was almost unheard of in those days. It was monochrome, unfortunately, but um, they had a pointing device, initially a little pen thing, but they quickly adopted the mouse. And so we developed with them um, the environment that we needed. We put a Unix on it and we developed some of the languages for it and so forth. And we had a computer system that was a, a, a really, it was very, it was a personal computer. I mean, only one person could drive it at a time. And it was used by the UK um, academic research community. They bought them in, in dozens um, to do academic research. Um, but that computer environment, of the windows and the mice and then the um, networking and so forth. Um, that was the sign. We, I mean, we could all clearly see that was the future of computing. Yeah. We knew it was. Um, and so having that experience from what, 81, 80, 81 to 83 of 
heading up that that development um, and working with the Carnegie Mellon people and the um, the Perk people in, in, in Pittsburgh, um, that gave me a lot of insight into one that kind of computing, um, two how to do a startup computer company because Perk was a startup company, and I had never really come across startup companies before. Um, you know, you don't really. I, I just didn't think about it. Um, but obviously, in states, there was venture capital and there was startup companies, and there were companies breaking through um, and doing interesting things. And I thought, this is cool. <laughs> we could, uh, we could maybe we could do this. Um, now I started talking to a couple of venture capitalists, and, and one of them said, "Oh, do you know about workstations?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, we're we're, we're running a workstation project." Oh, that's very interesting. And I thought, oh, that's you know, venture capitalists had spotted the fact that workstations were were big time. And so um, we got the really indication of they would be willing to fund us. In fact, they didn't, but but we did get funded. Um, And uh, we decided to call our company Office Workstations Limited because the workstation at that point was a scientific machine, but they were going to be coming to the office. So the office, the workstation was going to be an office machine and it would be the personal computer of the future. So we called ourselves Office Workstations Limited or OWL for short. And uh, and it coincided exactly with that. I went to, I remember going to um, a meeting at, at Microsoft in um, just off Lake Washington. Uh, you might know the building. It's um, a three-story building um, uh, off the, no, it's not the I-90, it's the other one. Anyway, no, the, I, know, I know exactly which one you're. You know the building. Yeah, totally. And um, I, I was visiting somebody there and he, he took me into a room, he, he unlocked it, it was a locked room, and he showed me a Macintosh, uh, which they'd been working on um, to develop software for it. And um, and the next year that machine came out. And so we knew it was coming. And, yeah. Uh, and when the Macintosh came out, we thought, wow, this is it. This is the office workstation. You know, this is what we knew we were going to have to work for, yeah. uh, work on. And so we had decided that documentation was a big issue here because on, on IBM PCs with fixed font text and so forth and no no layout, no fonts, no graphics, uh, documents don't look like documents. But with a graphics workstation, documents do look like documents, and, and document systems would be one of the, the big knockout applications. Um, so we decided to build a, a very sophisticated, massive documentation uh, system that would build um, big manuals for you know for engineering projects. They wanted a, a lot of document, a lot of manuals, all cross-referenced and uh, with figures and things in them and so forth. We decided to build that. And I, um, first thing I did the very first month, um, June 1984, I got on the plane and went to the States and looked around a few companies and discovered that there were two or three companies already doing this. And they were pretty well funded and they were going to, I think they were going to win. And we would find it very difficult to compete with them. At the same time, I'd visited um, a few places in the UK and I'd come across a particular project at the University of Canterbury in Kent. Um, uh, Professor Peter Brown had developed what he called dynamic documentation. And it was documents that you could click on and they would do things that would expand or contract or they would pop up notes or whatever. And um, we were really intrigued with this. We thought, well, actually, these machines, instead of actually making them produce documents, why don't they just deliver documents on the screen? And if you could find a really good way of navigating through these documents, that would be really cool. Um, so we licensed that technology and um, 
we uh, the guy had actually Professor Brown had called it Guide. We just used the name Guide, and we launched the product. First of all, we had it in a sort of pr uh, prototype form in the '85, and I showed it to a few people, including an executive at Microsoft, um, who sort of took me aside and said, "I've got a good idea. Why don't I leave Microsoft and join you, and um, set up your sales marketing here in, in Seattle uh, or Bellevue, as it happens?" But um, and I said. Uh, well, okay, it sounds interesting. And as it happens, one of our venture capitalists was in California that that week and we went down to see him and he thought it was a good idea. And so we went ahead with that. And so we set up our sales and marketing office in Seattle um, and uh, all our engineering was in Edinburgh and we built the company in, on that basis. And we launched Guide as the world's first commercial hypertext product in August '86. Um, on the Apple Mac. And you remember the original Apple Mac was quite underpowered. Yeah. Uh, but it was, uh, I mean, it was very functional and you could, I mean, it, it had a quite a small screen. It was 72 dots per inch. It was only black and white. But still, um, you could put, and actually our system was ideal for it because you could, it made it a lot more easy to navigate through documents um, by this idea of clicking on buttons and stuff. One thing that Professor Brown hadn't put in was a hypertext link, <laughs> funnily enough. He was a, a computer um, uh, purist who believed that go-tos were harmful and uh, hypertext links are go-to effectively, and um, he hadn't put that in. But as we built, as we developed our version of the product, we, we discovered very quickly we had to put hypertext yeah. links in. Yeah. And you, can go from, you can go from document to document. And so we put that in. And so the product we launched in, in um, August 87 was the world's first hypertext product. Made quite a splash. Um, you know, we got reviewed in Mike World and PC World. And um, we got, a, a, in those days, this was 1987, um, January 1987, the New York Times had used to have a, a weekly supplement called Science Times on a Tuesday. And there was one column in that supplement called personal computing. And so there was, in those days, back then, there was only one column a week in the New York Times devoted to personal computing. And in January 87, um, the, the guy wrote up um, this hypertext stuff and said how exciting it was and so forth and, and mentioned us and said, I mean, this is, he said, this is such a, a great topic that I'm going to come back to it again next week. Yeah. So we had two weeks in a row um, of coverage in the New York Times. And um, it was a great time to be, um, you know, to be breaking through and bringing something to market that nobody had seen before, but everybody agreed was, was the future in some kind or other. Um, so that was, that was quite, you know, uh, Quite a good uh, a good time to be, um, and then in '87 um, uh, we came across a little bit of, of a problem. Apple Computer had decided. I got wind of it um, around about February '87. Some of the Apple people I knew um, said to me, "You got to watch out. There's something coming down the pipe that uh, could be a problem for you." And I, I, anyway, we eventually we found out. Um, and it was a product that Apple, um, Bill Atkinson and Apple had developed called Wildcard. And it was a kind of application development kit. Um, anyway, they couldn't, for copyright reasons, use the, the word Wildcard. And instead, they latched onto calling it Hypercard. And you could kind of use it to build hypertext systems, but they were all in fixed cards. Um, However, you could use it for sort of 
um, if you digested documents into little cards, you could use it for delivering what could be described as hypertext. And they, uh, the marketing people at Apple um, decided to go full-scale on this hypertext theme. And they, they, they launched it with a 12-page pull-out supplement in the Wall Street Journal. And it went on to Vannevar Bush and Doug Engelbar and all these hypertext pioneers, Ted Nelson and everything. And it talked about this as hypertext. And they made a huge splash of it and they gave it away for free. So it came free with every new machine and you were encouraged to copy it and give it to friends. Yeah. And if you went to an Apple store, you could take a disc along and have it copied onto the disc and it would give you it for free. So it was effectively free. And uh, that was a big problem for us because our product was the Macintosh hypertext product. And uh, suddenly we found that we couldn't sell it. <laughs> Nobody wanted our product when hypercard yeah. was free. Fortunately, um, we had already developed a version for IBM PC. Uh, Microsoft Windows had just come out. I remember Windows 1.04. It was buggy as hell. It was just, I mean, you know, anyway, we, we ported, um, we decided that, I mean, the 95% of the market for personal computers was IBM format. So we had to do that. So we started, after we launched the Microsoft version, we started building the, the Windows version. And uh, I remember there was one uh, problem we had, you know, the, the lead developer was just banging his head against the wall. It was just awful. Um, eventually, we solved it by making sure that you could have any font that you liked as long as it was Arial, uh, because the font management in the Windows 1.04 was just impossible and just didn't work. Anyway, um, we got a product out in about June 1987 and HyperCAD came out in August 1987. And uh, so that was uh, a big problem for us in a way in that we could no longer sell our Macintosh product. However, Apple was making such a noise about this whole hypertext stuff um, that if anybody wanted to use hypertext and um, they didn't have an Apple, but they had an IBM PC or clone, that's 95% of the market. They kind of had to use us. So it turned out to be a real bonus. It was a, basically a marketing tool um, uh, for us. And uh, eventually we settled, we had a dispute with Apple over, um, they had access to some software of ours that they shouldn't have access to. And uh, we settled and um, the, we, we signed a, an agreement between us and, which allowed us, if we had wanted, to clone HyperCard on the IBM environment. I'm sure they did that deliberately because they thought that'd be a good thing for somebody to do. Um, but we didn't do that. We, we weren't really interested in doing that. So that was the, um, and then from then on, we we continued to build mostly on the on, on the IBM Windows platform. We added um, embedded video, we added scripting languages and stuff to build a very very large. We had to build a very large um, project, um, kind of oddly for the Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, they wanted us to build the comprehensive theological research tool. And we had to put, I think, 16 different Bibles, uh, plus Greek and, and uh, Hebrew, um, plus lots of reference books, all interlinked and cross-referenced and stuff. You could scroll up a Bible and you could have Greek on one side and the King James on the, yeah. on the right. You could click on one and the, the, that, the equivalent word would pop up on the right. Um, you could put any of these two Bibles together. They're all interlinked. All. To build that, I mean, this was cutting-edge stuff. This was way, way advanced compared to anything else on the market. Um, we had to develop a markup language, um, which we called HML, Hypertext Markup Language. 
and uh, and that uh, was what drove our, our work after that. And then, as I say, we managed to do things like put scripting languages in so you could drive devices or you could drive a, a video um, a source and you could embed the video in the documents and so forth. I mean, in those days, uh, multimedia meant, um, you know, extra boards and a big um, video displayer and all that sort of rubbish. Um I mean, all of that today is on your phone, but in those days, it was all extra kit everywhere. Um, and then we were, you know, that system was used quite a lot in education, sometimes in publishing. The first, um, the first um, environment of CNET uh, was on our platform. Um, uh, educational stuff. Um, we did some um, games, um, uh, information of various kinds, and there was some even some interactive media um, done. In fact, we we were commissioned to do the the environment for Philips launched a product called the CDI, which was a, a multimedia CD type device. Um, uh, a sort of early console, really, um, and uh, they commissioned us to do the environment for that. We did a massive project with Hewlett Packard for Ford, Ford Motor Company called Service Bay Diagnostic System, and we put all of their service manuals um, on a computer screen. Uh, Hewlett Packard built the big device that it ran on uh, with wheels underneath and stuff, and you wheeled it around to the car, you plugged it in, got some diagnostics, and you got the manuals up. We did all of that. And that was quite sophisticated as well because the, um, there was a CD-ROM that carried the basic manual, but we could update that manual um, anytime using um, downloaded files. Um, uh, so updates came in regularly and stuff. And so we were, we were really, you know, taking it on big time. Um, uh, all of that could be networked. I mean, documents could be anywhere on the network. But the networks weren't very powerful. Um, so, I mean, one client we had was a legal company and they had offices in Bristol and London. And if you came across a button and you clicked on it and the document you wanted happened to be in the other location, you could literally go away and make a cup of tea before it came in because networks, commercial networks, those times were, you know, I don't know, 1,200 board or something. Um, the difference uh, that, of course, Tim Berners-Lee had was he had the internet, <laughs> which was a lot faster. Um, but that was really restricted only to um, the public sector. Uh, defence workers, uh, researchers and so forth. You were laying the foundations for how we now live and work, which has become the equivalent of electricity in our everyday lives, in that it is omnipresent and we take it for granted. We made it practical. Um, I mean, to be fair, Doug Engelbart <laughs> did behaviourist thing. Uh, I don't know if you know much about Doug Engelbart. Yep. Uh, Doug Engelbart... Um, Ran this way. He was in. He was a leader scientist in the Stanford Research Institute in the sixties, and he was funded by DARPA with a lot of money uh, to build um, a machine that was a personal information machine. And he built. He he invented the world's first mouse, carved out of wood, um, and he built the world's first hypertext system, which he demonstrated in a big demonstration in um, December nineteen sixty eight in San Francisco called the mother of all demos. And um, he broke through. I mean, he did he did all the, that early stuff. But of course, his computer cost, I don't know, 20 million or something. Um, whereas um, we waited until the Apple Mac came along. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a mere $2,000 off your 1984, you know, money. So yeah. $2,000 in 1984 was a, a tidy sum, but it was yeah. still a personal yeah. computer, obviously. And... Uh, 
but that was practical. Um, so we yeah. did we did the practical delivery um, in real in, in real stuff. Um, and yeah, we were the forerunner really. Um, and uh, Hypercard had quite a lot of uh, following, uh, and our systems had as well. And then um, I could go into the, the Tim Berners Lee aspect of this because I. Um, we were showing, there was a, a technical conference at, um, in Versailles near Paris, um, the world's, the, the European first hypertext conference uh, under the auspices of the ACM. And we had showed um, our guide uh, system on there. And um, I bumped into this chap who said, oh, are you Ian Ritchie? And I said, yes. He said, oh, let's go and get a beer. And so he introduced himself, and his name was Tim Berners-Lee. And um, Tim told me about the work he'd been doing at CERN. And he'd been interested for years in this idea of interactive documents and navigation documents and so forth. And he'd built some hypertext stuff, and he'd, he'd kind of developed it too. And what he was trying to do was give the physicists in CERN and the physicists around the world who work with CERN access to a whole collection of documents that could easily be navigated. Yeah. So you could click on a button and go from document to document. And he'd, uh, so he developed this system, um, which at that time, this was November 1990, was literally on one computer, his next computer in his office. That was the whole World Wide Web. Yeah. And he'd called it the World Wide Web. And um, he said he'd called it the World Wide Web because the world would use it um, to deliver all its documentation <laughs> in the future. And I found that a little bit difficult to believe, but anyway. Um, <laughs> his World Wide Web at that time was text only. Um, and when you came across a button, it was kind of in bold, and then afterwards there'd be a bracket and a number. And then to fire that button, you would press the number on the keyboard, and that would fire your button. So that was how you would navigate from document to document. Um, but clearly, he really wanted a proper interface. I mean, he was aware of Hypercard and so forth. And uh, he'd seen our product, and he thought that was you know, what we did was exactly what he needed. Um, so he wanted us to write a browser um, for his World Wide Web. And um, there was a few th problems with that. One is that the internet of which the web sat on wasn't available commercially. Um, it could only be used by people in defense or government or uh, scientific researchers, academic researchers and stuff. It wasn't, there was no, you know, no connection between the CompuServes and AOLs of this world and the internet um, at that time. And that came, that came um, around about 93, around about 93, um, the internet was opened up and uh, commercial users were allowed to interact with it um, and then begin to support it. Um, so I don't know if you remember much of this, but between 93 and 96, 97, the AOLs, CompuServe, and Microsoft had actually started a project called MSNet, which yeah. was going to be an, a an AOL of, of their design. All of these got pretty much abandoned in favor of the internet because in any network is only as good as the number of people using it. There was a lot of people on the internet already. And so try to compete with them as, um, and you wanted to be able to address emails to anybody. Yeah. Um, so that the internet came alive about 93, 94, um, but not in 1990 when, when Tim was talking to me. Now we could have built a, a browser. We had built special versions of our software for all sorts of people, for Hewlett Packard, for Bell Atlantic, for, you know, um, Data General we did one for. Um, so we could have done it, and we could have done it for maybe about $50,000, something like that. Um, 
But he had no money. Um, the World Wide Web wasn't an official project at CERN. CERN was a science research centre, not a computer science research centre, he kept getting told. And um, they didn't really want to um, encourage, <laughs> encourage him much. And so it was a skunkworks project. I mean, he didn't, he, he wasn't, um, he wasn't doing it illegally. I mean, his boss knew he was doing it, but he wasn't given any budget. And so he had no money to, to buy a, a browser. So obviously we couldn't do a browser unless we were paid to do it, or there was a commercial market. And there yeah. was no commercial market. So we didn't. Um, and so in 1993, I went to the ACM Hypertext Conference, which in that year was in Seattle. And uh, there was a kitchen table set up and a computer on it. And Mark Andreessen was demonstrating the Mosaic browser for the World Wide Web. And I mean, the instant I saw this, I thought, yep, <laughs> that's that's going to be the winner. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's going yeah. to do it. That really is going to do it. And um, uh from then on, I, I mean, we knew that. But anyway, I'd sold my company by then. The, the main thing was that really as soon as I saw um, the internet was then commercially available, and then as soon as I saw the Mosaic browser, I, I did realise that that was going to be the future. It was going to uh, knock off all the... And then I did a stupid... Well, I didn't do something that um, I should have done, um, and not doing it was stupid, which is I knew this was going to be big. And I had the unique position of being able to call on a bunch of people who had worked for me at all, who really knew this technology so very well. We could have built a web technology company um, easily um, in 94. Um, and yeah, about 94. Um, we wouldn't even need any funding because we would have just done it ourselves. I mean, it yeah. wouldn't have been expensive to, to do it. And we could have built a, say, a web authoring tool um, about 96, 97, Adobe, Microsoft, and others were buying these tools from developers for $60 million. And uh, we could have been one of those. <laughs> but I wasn't smart enough. And also, I'd, I'd made a personal decision. As I said, my wife had a fairly high-profile job, and I decided I would start doing the school run and and not, not rush in and do another company. Um, and so I still was in that frame of mind, unfortunately. Um so that's why I, uh, I missed out on, really. But um, but anyway, um, as I said, we sold the company. We sold the company in, in late 1989, uh, December 89, so effectively 1990, um, to Panasonic. Panasonic came knocking on the door, and they were interested in buying a stake in the company. We said, no, if you're going to be for somebody like Panasonic, um, that'll be an exit for us. So either you buy it all or you yeah. You, you don't invest and so they decided to buy us and uh, and we spent about a year and a half negotiating that because the Japanese don't work quickly in these matters um, yeah. and we sold the company to Panasonic in 1990 so by the time I'd met Tim Berners-Lee it wasn't my company anymore it was Panasonic's and um, I can see you know me having a discussion with my masters in, in Osaka um, we're going to do this uh, this browser for this system that's not at all commercial um, and we're going to give it away for free. And I can see them going, really, Richie-san? <laughs> you know, is, that, is that the way the world works nowadays? <laughs> anyway, I had I had visions um, when Panasonic showed an interest that they were going to use our technology to build a new type of device. And my, my picture of my, in my head was when you go to a, um, a railway station in Japan, there's piles of manga comics. Um, yeah. And then people buy the manga comics and sit in the, the long commutes and, and read them. And I thought we could make a little device. 
and the easiest um, com, you know comparison would be a Kindle. But um, th- in those days, the Game Boy was available. Game Boy had a little battery-powered um, black and white screen and stuff. So you know these devices weren't out of the question. And I thought we could build a, a device that maybe delivered manga comics uh, initially, but then would grow yeah. um, over time into being a Kindle. I don't know when the Kindle came out, but it wasn't for another you know, 15 years or something. Um, Panasonic could have owned that market. They really could have. Um, if they had had the wit or, or uh, risk-taking ability, they would never really pioneered uh, Panasonic. Uh, what they did use us for um, was they were in a consortium with Sony and Philips to develop the DVD platform. Um, the DVD, um, Sony and, and and Panasonic had um, and Philips actually on all different and all um, had the the, vent, the video cassette wars and had lost um, VCR uh, VHS one. Betamax was uh, didn't win and so forth. So they weren't going to go do that again, and so they agreed between them they were going to do one standard uh, for DVD. Um, and so that uh, was a common uh, architecture. And when it came to the software architecture for DVD, uh, Panasonic was able to stick its hand up and say, oh, we've got this lot in Scotland that can do this. Um, and so that's what we did. So we did the environment for the DVD. So when you stick a DVD disc in a DVD player and it comes up with scenes and trailers and stuff, all that software was us. Um, we also did some set-up Volkswagen and stuff as well. But I was quite disappointed, I have to say, that Panasonic didn't have the wit um, uh, or foresight to build a breakthrough yeah. uh, machine like a Kindle that could have been you know, quite something. Anyway, they didn't. Yeah, that's frustrating. And the deadly sin of when organisations become big, they get complacent, get drunk on their own Kool-Aid and drowned in their habits and rituals where they can't see the wood from the trees and ultimately start making ego-based decisions. And before they know it, the future has kissed them goodbye. What are the key skills needed, Ian, to survive and thrive as an entrepreneur? Ooh, right. Well, you've got... To, it's, it's getting more difficult all the time, by the way. It's getting more difficult. Because in my day in the 80s, you know, Microsoft was in one three-story building, you know, off like Washington. Yeah. Nowadays, Microsoft is one of the biggest companies in the world. Apple is the biggest company in the world. The top five companies in the world are all digital economy companies. And they are stinking rich. Um, and they can afford to put you out of business uh, by just clicking a finger and putting a few million. Um, and so that's what they do. So it's it's even trickier than it used to be. But the, okay, what you've got to do is you've got to have a piece of Technology. If it's a technology um, startup, and that's what interests me, um, you're going to have to do something that's different. Um, but the big guys don't want. Are really not interested in it yet. But they will do when it becomes big. So I mean, right now um, there are companies all over the place doing stuff in virtual reality and augmented reality and Internet of Things. Um, and these companies are doing it small scale because there really isn't a well, there isn't an augmented reality market out there yet yeah. but there will be one in about three years time you know um you know hololens or apple um glass i think what's yeah. it called yeah. anyway and, and and obviously um uh facebook has actually called their name you know after it and google's got their, uh, their work yeah. as well so they're all working on it and, and suddenly there will be a bit like when we were doing 
um, apps for graf graphics workstations as the, as the Macintosh arrived, there will suddenly be platforms on which you can do dramatic new things. So that's one avenue. Look at that. See if you can work on a way of doing something really different um, that works really well. But it's too, there's no market today, but there will be in a few years' time. And start working on that and make a breakthrough in that. And you will almost certainly be acquired. Um, and then the game is trying to be acquired at the right time. Because only one or two companies will survive um, in any one sector. And uh, and also judging when the right time to sell, you know, um, who was it wanted to buy Microsoft, uh, Facebook for a billion dollars and uh, Zuckerberg turned them down. Um, now he obviously had nerve, <laughs> yeah, but um, he was right, obviously, in, in retrospect. And getting that timing right is so difficult as well. But you've got to, and you will. Um, it's it's difficult to imagine a startup company going all the way. Um, to being a, a you know a Nasdaq listed business nowadays, um, you're most likely to be bought, especially when you've got the five biggest companies in the world are all sitting on piles of money, yeah. and they want yeah. to make sure that if you've got an idea that's of interest to them, that they can either buy it and use it, or buy it and snuff it out, and they don't care either way uh, which way it is. Um, so here, even here in Edinburgh, I mean, I know three, what, four or five companies have been bought in the last few years by Facebook, Google, Apple. Um, you never get told. You never get told how much to pay. Yeah, it's an absolute secret. I mean, you know, I I know a board director. Um, on one of these companies. I know the chairman of the company and they won't tell me. Um, so, you know, they, they just don't, you know, you never find these things out. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I mean, one of these companies was a wee company called Two Big Ears um, uh, based on research at St. Andrews University. And they had um, audio technology that allowed you to place the audio anywhere around your head um, with, just a micro, with just a pair of headphones. Now, this isn't new technology. I mean, I had this chairman of a company about 20 years ago that did this, but they had it at the right time, and Facebook bought it for their um, uh, their VR uh, project. Um, and uh, the guys who did it went to work for Facebook for a few years. They've now come back to Scotland because, like you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they missed the place. Um, <laughs> but that's what's happening. So yeah. what you've got to do is be part of the food chain, You've got to do something um, dramatically different in an area that is going to be big, but isn't big yet. Um, and then you've got to make sure you're visible um, and uh, that you can be, you know, these guys will know you're there. And at some point or other, they'll approach you and say, okay, um, we'd like to buy your company. And then it's a matter of horse trading. Of course, if you can get more than one uh, particular purchaser, that's even better because you can get the price up. But by and large, that's that's the way it works. Um, so I, yeah, I've been involved in about fifty startups in Scotland in the last thirty years, uh, mostly in Scotland, um, and they all do something different um, that's unique. Um, I mean, one of my current ones uh, is Crotos. Crotos, uh, C K R O T O S. Have a look at the website. Crotos does audio technology. Um, founded by a, a Greek lad. Uh, who came to Edinburgh to do an MSc in audio technology. Um, during his MSc, he did a project where he turned the human voice into different sorts of voices. Um, so you can mix a human voice with, say, a lion or a tiger or a robot or whatever, and you can make all these voices uh, in real time. So you can speak wow. into the microphone and it comes out and sounds like a... Well, we did um, Idris Elba. We turned him into a... Um, 
uh, what's the younger book uh, uh, character anyway the, um, the the big cat in Jungle yeah. Book uh, we did we processed the Joselba's voice into that um, so that was uh, and, he, and before it, before he knew it he'd sold it um, uh, to all sorts of Hollywood um, applications and uh, the Avengers Age of Ultron was an early uh, most of the voices there are, are done by us um, so he is uh, now developing that company into doing, they've gone on to do um, a thing called Reformer, which takes any sound effect and allows you to trigger it anyway. Um, we've done Weaponizer, which covers the whole range of weapons. Um, so we had you know, all the uh, guns and cannons and things all specially recorded and processed, and you can do all that. You don't have to yeah. do it. You don't have to record them again. You can just, if you've got, if you're, um, you're fully editing a film you just add all the effects in um uh, so yeah we've we've got all the we've got um car noises vehicle noises you know we're doing all that and we're actually in the process now of building a a whole fully desk um uh, that you would use as a personal computer um that can do all your post-processing uh, audio um for uh, for anything really and we we concentrate well we're currently concentrating on the, the big movies and the big computer games but ultimately we'll be moving into consumer markets as well um so you can enliven your little tiktok with a bit of you know audio effect or something that's an exciting breakthrough that combined with some of the other themes you mentioned where there is an increasing convergence of many technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality and and video, where people function within the digital universe, where the lines between physical and virtual life are blurred and that the edges are no longer the boundaries. Yeah, exactly. And there's nobody doing anything like this. I mean, there are companies doing... I mean, there's a company I heard about the other day that's doing a lot of things with music instruments, and you can make a, you can define, decide the music instrument from scratch, and drive it from your computer. But um, this is, you know, this is a general um, audio effect type uh, business, and nobody else is doing anything like this. Um, so, wow, we will eventually get bought. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll be Dolby or someday. You know, somebody who's in that kind of game. Um, uh, uh, it, it, it will they will come out in the end um, that uh, it'll be of some real value and that's what you've got to do you've got to start something and you've got to build it up you've got to create a market um, one thing about this company is it has got customers I mean we can we've, in fact on their website you can see all the all the logos of all the movies um, and uh, yeah it's uh, that's the kind of thing you've got to do I mean another one my company is at the moment is a company called Shotscope and they make a, a wearable watch that uh, takes on your golf score as you play golf um, it detects what club you're holding um, and it it basically takes on your score. You don't have to mark up your card. <laughs> when you get back to the, the uh, club room, you plug it into your computer and it marks your card up for you. Um, but it also, if you want it to, it can give you advice. So it can tell you that in this particular situation with uh, that particular distance in this bunker or whatever, you should be using a 3 iron um, because people who didn't weren't didn't get the right shot, <laughs> work out all that type of stuff, you know. You can also use it to do league tables with your mates. Um, so you can play competitively with a bunch of your mates um, where all their golf games are recorded and put into one league table and you can mark, you know, you can observe them. And, and so there's all sorts of things it can do. So it's, it's very, very interesting 
piece of work. Um, it's a it's a Scottish company, but we're making some inroads in the states now. But the plan at the moment is to raise five million. Uh, we're in the process of raising five million um, in order to really do a proper marketing campaign in yeah. the states. That's, that that's company will get bought. That'll get bought by Garmin off, or somebody, or or, or Taylor Made or one of these sort of businesses. Without a doubt. As you reflect back on your career to date, Ian, what are your lessons learned in terms of the pitfalls to avoid and the keys to success that you can share with existing but also aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah. Hmm. Well, um, <laughs> you've got to have lots of energy and lots of determination. Um, I mean, I was, I, I, I started all in my 30s. Um, I think your 30s is probably your best time. If you're younger than that, you don't have the experience yet. Um, if you're older than that, you don't have the, the, the stamina. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I used to uh, I used to come home from work, um, see the kids off to bed, and then go back into work and work until the early hours. I couldn't do that today. I couldn't do that, you know. Um, so you've got to have, and you've got to, you've got to have, it's funny, you've got to have mixed feelings about things you've got to have the um the determination that what you're doing is the best thing in the world and then you've also simultaneously got to know that there's competitors out there who want to kill you and i've no illusions about it your competitors want to kill you um so um that's the thing that it's difficult to teach scottish people um they don't really understand the real world of computing you know um i mean people's bizarrely think Apple's a cuddly company. Apple is the most ruthless company on the planet. Well, almost as ruthless as, as Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> but but you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, going back to some of those points you were saying earlier then where um, you, when an industry starts to, 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 when you make an industry and then it starts to mature, then it becomes monopolized by three to five yeah. players. And that three to five players then get into this whole monopolistic kind of behavior where it's anything that's yeah. a threat, I kill it, right? And it's yeah. it's so wrong. Yeah. It's, it's ethically so wrong. And, and, yeah. um, and, it's, and it's, but it's nice when you get these companies that buy the startups that you mentioned and they, they, oh, yeah. they embrace them. But when they, yeah, yeah. They, they acquire them to kill them, that's just, it's ethically wrong. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. And when I say, I, I think we're going to start seeing maybe some action on this. Um, the new um, secretary for um, competition, this is the CMA in the States, um, she's an academic, relatively young, in her 30s, I think, um, who's been um, uh, doing papers for years on how competition authority, uh, uh, law is no longer in touch with what the current climate is. So it's not about value for money anymore. It's about um, allowing competition to develop and, and real breakthroughs to happen. Um, so there's, I think, kind of things going to happen there. The British government has recently instituted a new thing where you've got to register any potential technology company um, and in a way that um, makes them aware that technology is being leaked out of the country. I, I think their eyes are really on the Chinese because the Chinese yeah. have been buying up um, technology. And I think they're going to be blocking Chinese acquisitions in future. But um, who knows? They might even start moving on to the Googles of the world as well. Right? Yeah. It's a possibility. Um, so that, you know, that may happen. That may happen. I think things are changing. I, think, I don't think um, they're going to get away with uh, quite, if the five biggest companies in the world, uh, you've got to allow some hope for fresh, <laughs> fresh. <Exactly. shoots>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. So tilting forward, Ian, mm. what's your vision for the future of entrepreneurship and the role of creativity? Mm, it's a tricky one because, um, uh, I mean, I was building my business in the 80s when the personal computer was arriving and there was so much scope to do new things uh, that nobody had done before which was a great, a, a, a wonderful um, opportunity um, that we grasped. Now, in the 90s, it was the internet um, that was throwing up all these opportunities. In the early 2000s, it was mobile technology that was allowing you to build new apps. I mean, one of the companies I co-founded was a company that did games for mobile phones, founded in 1999, just as mobile phones were beginning to be capable of doing games. Um, we sold that business in 2006 for $100 million. Um, in the late time, more recent times, it's been Internet of Things, I think. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of work there uh, to be done with um, just, you know, sprinkling computing sensing devices all over the place and processing them in intelligent ways. Or big data is another one that's really big at the moment, which is... Uh, now that you can hold masses and masses of data, you can start to extract real intelligence from those. And that's an area that's that's very powerful. And AI, I suppose, another way is um, now that you can do it big time. I mean, I was involved in an AI project in the early 80s, um, but it was it was it was toy time stuff compared to what you can do today. Coming forward, the next the future, I think um, augmented reality is undoubtedly going to be uh, going to be massive. Um, there's no real reason why your phone needs to be... I mean, your phone is not a phone anymore. Your phone's your personal information. Device. Right. And uh, your phone doesn't even need to be in your pocket. It can be anywhere. Um, I suppose ultimately it might be shrunk into the, just the leg of the, the glasses you're wearing. And on your glasses, you will be able to superimpose um, anything you want and um, and access any information you want. Um, and, it, you know, so... Um, if you're sitting on a train, you can watch a movie, not by doing anything other than you know calling it up on your on your glasses, and yeah. the movie will happen in front of your eyes or whatever. If you're lost um, or you don't want to know where the nearest petrol station is or the nearest Lou or the nearest branch of John Lewis, um, you just ask and it'll it'll show you. Um, it'll take you there. So that's that's going to be, um, you know, I mean, people uh, using the Apple Watch as a way of Miniaturizing information access, but that's I think that's that's only a stepping stone along the way. I think you'll have all the information that's currently on your smartphone, but you won't actually need to have your smartphone there. It'll be in front of you, um, and it should be I don't know voice driven or easily easily navigatable anyway, one way or another. Um, there's a lot of work to be done on on um, haptics and uh, and making stuff um, more accessible. Um, you know, we've we've still got bizarrely the computer mouse, um, which is a both a wonderful invention and a terrible invention. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's kind of it's still artificial. I mean, it, you know, it, it solves so many problems, but really the answer is uh, when I saw the iPad launched, um, I immediately that's 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 it. I mean, that's the answer. Um, information at your fingertips, literally yeah. information at your fingertips, and that's what. Uh, you will do um, whether you can manage to do your fingertips on your eye 
your glasses on you. <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to you'll have to project or something, and you'll have to point and and and, and click your buttons. I don't know how they'll do that, but uh, that's going to be the future. There's no question about that. Um, I wouldn't like to speculate beyond that, to be honest. Um, I mean, if you were being um, negative, then the world is getting more dangerous all the time. Um, you know, and technology is contributing to that. Um, I don't know if you ever read uh, my book, Dave Egger's book, The Circle. Um, but it was it's been turned into anyway. The, the Chinese are doing it today. They're basically using it. They're measuring everybody, and they're giving you marks. And if you don't behave properly, you find you can't actually buy a train ticket. Yeah, another, yeah. yeah. Um, because they've decided you're not you know, worthy <laughs> of it, and so forth. So that's beginning to happen. Um, drones are beginning to be tricky. Um, I'm I'm amazed, frankly, that there has been a terrorist incident using drones by now. Um, just flying a, a dirty weapon or a, a bomb into yeah. a, a location, a, a crowd of people or something, and setting it off. You know, um, and then there's the whole thing about cyber um, cyber terrorism. Um, we're all we're at the moment. We've just been warned in Britain. Uh, to make sure your your firewalls are all on and so forth, because the Russians are beginning to um, start to annoy the Ukrainians, and they did that before, and it expanded and brought down a lot of the health system in Britain. Last time they did their, you know, they were trying to just bring down something in Ukraine, but it affected Australia and all over the place. Um, so that's not good either. Um, the whole social media stuff, where really it beggars belief that Facebook can easily and quickly detect and remove a female nipple but leave a male nipple in a picture that you post that's what they do wow. and yet people giving advice to kids of how to kill themselves is left up you know it's it it just beggars belief that they can do whatever they can do and then get away with just awful stuff and uh so there's a lot to be done um, to, <laughs> yeah. for the future. Um, you have to hope that people are, you know, doing things in a good in a good way. But unfortunately, anyway, I, my good dream is my augmented reality glasses. I'll leave you with that one. Perfect for your creatives. Yes, <laughs> oh, absolutely perfect. Your creatives. You can do a theatre production where there's one person on the stage, but it looks like they're in the middle of a huge audience of things with you know. Um, bull fights and all sorts of things. Absolutely, <laughs> you're able to create amazing stuff. Um, yeah, in that environment. So that's something to look forward to big time. Creative leaders have confidence in their ideas and never give up on bringing them to fruition. It means leading without frontiers by seeing around the corners and fearlessly navigating into the future to move society forward and improve people's lives. But just how soon is the future? One thing for sure is, the future is unwritten and anything is possible. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers. How to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. 
please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.